You're listening to Review and Preview on Facebook Live. going on everybody good evening welcome to review and preview i'm your host tom scavetta we have an action-packed show for you all tonight before we get into the specifics want everybody to know that you can follow us on facebook at review and preview sports on instagram as well twitter and the anchor you can look up our link tree at review and preview sports and subscribe to our youtube channel i'll leave this up here for a moment so you all can see it make sure to give us a thumbs up we are currently at 66 subscribers we want to get to 100 subs by summertime. So keep those subscribes coming, folks. Really do appreciate it. So one-man show for now, but we do have an action-packed show in store for you all here tonight. First off, host of the Cover One podcast, Greg Thompson, will be joining the show at 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. He works with the Buffalo Bills. He does a lot of content for them. Uh, he's from Cleveland, Ohio, and he's a Bills fan, originally from Georgia. And Greg, we had on the show once before, right before the Bills went, um, well, right before the Bills hosted the Indianapolis Colts in the wild card round of the 2020 NFL playoffs. So I'm looking forward to having him on. And then Kyle Russo should be joining me a little bit later on in the show. So, Folks, really do appreciate you all tuning in tonight. I'm going to start off recapping the New York Jets before we get to the Buffalo Bills. This show tonight is going to be centered around the AFC East and kind of like what they did in the draft, what they did in the offseason to improve. This will be the last week we're realistically talking about the NFL draft and football, but I do want to talk about the Jets because we haven't gotten a chance to really break them down yet. And the first player I do want to talk about for the Jets is quarterback Zach Wilson out of BYU. He came out as a junior. He was picked second overall, uh, 6'2", 215 build. And, you know, Zach Wilson is a really interesting prospect for the Jets. This is a guy who uh, last season had an 11-to-1 touchdown to interception ratio in college, which is very impressive. He has a very accurate deep ball. He threw for 3,700 passing yards. And my only concern with Zach Wilson as a – quarterback in the NFL is what type of scheme is he going to have to work with with the New York Jets obviously their new offensive coordinator Mike LaFleur brother of the Green Bay Packers head coach Matt LaFleur and I think it'll be interesting to see how Zach Wilson translates to that NFL level it's going to be very interesting and folks if you have any comments questions thoughts concerns on Zach Wilson make sure to comment in the live stream really do appreciate all the support you guys give us here at Review and Preview. I really like Zach Wilson heading into the NFL. I know a lot of people view him as a boomer bust type of prospect, but I think Zach Wilson has the potential to really be something special. So 
If you have any questions on Zach Wilson, feel free to comment. But for now, I'm going to move on to the Jets' second first-round draft pick. The Jets were originally picking 23rd, and then they moved up to 14 overall. They treated up to take the Minnesota Vikings pick to select who, in my opinion, was the best interior offensive lineman in this draft, Elijah Vera Tucker. Uh, Elijah Vera Tucker is a player out of USC. He's a guard, redshirt junior, 6'4", 308. I really like him a lot. Um, it was a guy that Giants were rumored to potentially be linked to if they were to trade down or potentially even at number 11, being that he won at 14. Uh, Elijah Vera Tucker has a very thick frame. He's a very good athlete as well. And he's going to play next to Makai Becton, which is very interesting because I really like uh, him helping solidify the left side of the New York Jets offensive line. I think he'll be a very good NFL player. Only 19 career college starts in 31 games, but USC has had a very good offensive line uh, throughout the past couple of years. So it'll be interesting to see if that success translates to the NFL level. So the Jets' two first-round picks really like what they did, especially at number 14. Um, and then, of course, in the second round, they came back. They took Elijah Moore, who a lot of people had him tabbed as a top five receiver in this draft. Obviously, he did not go top five. The receivers went. It was Chase followed by Waddle, Smith. Giants took Kadarius Tony at number 20. And then Rashad Bateman went to the Ravens at 20. Seven. So that's where the receivers went. Elijah Moore did not go until the second round. I personally believe that this is an absolute steal for the New York Jets. He's 5'10, 180 pounds. Uh, that is Elijah Moore. And this is the second year in a row the Jets have gone wide receiver in round two. Last year, they took Denzel Mims, and he was an interesting prospect. For the Jets, he kind of came on late. He started off the season a little dinged up, but I'm very confident that he'll be able to pick up the pace in year number two. And, of course, the Jets are returning Jameson Crowder. So now you've helped out Zach Wilson. What the Jets did with their preceding three picks in this draft is they added weapons to their offense. They get Elijah Vera Tucker. They get Elijah Moore. And then they get Michael Carter, running back out of UNC, who I'll move on to in just a moment. But – uh, back to Elijah Wilson, 86 catches for 1,200 yards and eight touchdowns in, in just eight games this past year. Just eight. That's not a lot, folks. Uh, he was a monster in his final three games. That's where he stacked up a lot of his numbers. He has traits similar to Antonio Brown, which I found interesting. And when Ole Miss played Alabama this year, this guy's lined up against Patrick Sertan. He caught 11 of his 12 targets. So he's gone up against the best of the best playing that SEC schedule, which quite frankly is not an easy schedule. So I really like this Elijah Moore pick for the Jets. I like what Joe Douglas has done with this team. Uh, you know, it's not often that you see the Jets have a very successful draft. And this is the first time in a while where I think the Jets are trying to build around Zach Wilson, help him succeed. They needed another wide receiver. They took one in the second round. They need another offensive lineman. They took one. And in the fourth round, the Jets didn't have a third-round pick because they traded up in the first. They went after Michael Carter, running back out of UNC. Um, you know, it, it, he's an interesting prospect. He's small for running back. He's small height-wise, but he's pretty big weight-wise. He's 200 pounds for a guy who's only 5'8", senior. So he played all four years last year. He had eight touchdowns on the ground. 
I know he was kind of secondary to Javante Williams, who went in the second round, I believe, in this draft. Um, but Michael Carter had nearly 1,250 yards on the ground. He was graded as a third-round talent. Jets get him in the fourth round, so that's a good steal right there. And when I look at young running backs, what's really important to me personally is ball security. And the guy had zero fumbles in his last two seasons. Now, despite his small size, I think he has a good feel for the lane, pretty average to above average, and he's trustworthy in pass protection. Now, is Michael Carter our starting running back? Well, I don't know because the Jets don't have much depth at running back. Frank Gore isn't there anymore. Um, I think they brought in Tevin Coleman. I'm not so sure. I, you know, I don't follow the Jets religiously, but I do think Michael Carter was a really good pickup and the Jets got a nice steal and they spent their first four picks on offense. And now their last six picks going to just going to run a ticker there. They were all defensive picks. They went Jamie and Sherwood in the fifth round out of Auburn. He's a linebacker. I thought that was a little bit of a reach, more of a sixth to seventh round guy. Uh, you know, he's long limbed. He's a good tackler, but he needs to lose a little bit of weight. Um, in my opinion, if he's going to make that transition into the NFL, a lot of people are confused what position he actually is, whether he's a linebacker or a defensive back. And he's in that height weight area where you're still trying to figure out how his game will transition into the NFL. He's 6'2", 215 pounds. So right then and there, that tells you that this guy's a little bit of a wild card. Um, and then moving on to their other fifth round pick again. So the Jets drafted – Two Michael Carters in this draft. Same first name, same last name, no relation. Michael Carter II, a corner slash safety out of Duke. That makes it even weirder. One Michael Carter was the running back from UNC. The other was a corner from Duke. Duke and UNC, two rival colleges in North Carolina. Uh, Michael Carter II, he's 5'10", 185, a senior. He was used a lot more as a safety last year, so it'll be interesting to see. Because I feel like the Jets are pretty good at safety. They have Marcus May. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how he does. Folks, again, if you have any comments in the comments section about these draft picks, we'd love to have them. We love the interaction here with our show. And as you can see on our banner, that is right. Greg Thompson, host of the Cover One Buffalo podcast, will be joining us in about 20 minutes. He works and puts a lot of content out on the Buffalo Bills. So, Tonight's show will be centered around the AFC East, as I mentioned at the start. Now, the Jets, they weren't done. They had three fifth-round picks. They had three fifth-rounders and three sixth-rounders. Their third fifth-round pick was sent on, was spent on another corner, Jason Pinnock, out of Pittsburgh. Um, in 2020, he played nine games. He had three interceptions, which is pretty impressive. So you're getting about an interception every three games. Playing an ACC schedule, that's not easy. You're going up against teams like Notre Dame, Boston College, Louisville. It's definitely not easy. And this guy's from Connecticut, so he's a local kid. He's one of the Jets players who already signed their rookie deal. Pinnock is very athletic, but on film that I watch from this guy, he has a tendency to give up the big play. And you never want to give up the big play in the NFL. That will get you a one-way bus ticket out of town, especially if you're playing in New York. So if he wants to stick around... He needs to learn how to play some better press man. Um, don't let guys beat him. Don't commit penalties and work on his conditioning at that next level. Um, now, the first of three sixth round picks, this name is a little bit tricky 
at number 186 overall, Hamsa Nasiruddin. Again, very similar to the Jamie and Sherwood pick. He's a linebacker slash DB. Don't really know where he's going to play on this team. Uh, he's big. He's 6'3", 215. Unfortunately, he tore his ACL in 2019, and he did lead FSU in tackles that year despite tearing his ACL in the year prior. So I think, you know, again, Florida State, ACC team, they're a good program. I know they've struggled over the last four to five years, but, you know, he was their leading tackler for two of his final three seasons. So I think that's very impressive. He only played two games last year, and the ACC was one of the conferences that played all games throughout the course of this pandemic-struck season, and Hamsa only played in two of them. So, And then we move on to the final two picks for the Jets. At number 200, they took Brandon Eccles, a cornerback out of Kentucky, 5'10", 180, his senior. He signed his rookie deal as well. This corner actually played the opposite side of Kelvin Joseph, who went in the second round of this draft. Um, I believe Kelvin Joseph was picked by the Dallas Cowboys. So when I think of Brandon Eccles, I think good length, ball skills for a guy who's 5'10". He started out in Juco for his first two years. He had identical tackles in each of his two seasons at Kentucky, uh, 54 in each season. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what he can do. Um, And then the last pick is Jonathan Marshall, a defensive tackle out of uh, Arkansas, redshirt senior, 6'3", 3'10", signed his rookie deal, only a one-year starter, though, although he did have six-and-a-half tackles for loss, Arkansas. Again, you're playing that SEC schedule. It's not easy. Um, He's not a nose tackle. I think Marshall could be better at the three-tech position, and the reason why I think he got drafted in the sixth and he wasn't a seventh-round pick or UDFA is because of his pro day. Now, a lot of teams this year had to scout guys based off their pro day numbers, and that's exactly what they did. And I think Jonathan Marshall took advantage of that. So kind of going over the Jets draft, as I mentioned, just to briefly recap that, their first four picks were offense, right, Um, which I found pretty interesting. And then their last six picks were defense. Um, So the Jets kind of took two very different approaches throughout the first and second half of the draft. They did take three corners. So, folks, if you have any questions for us in the comments section about the Jets draft, feel free to chime in. How do you think they evaluated their draft? So, but I personally think they did a good job. They did a good job. Again, the Zach Wilson pick, you could argue that's a boomer bust type of selection. Um, They did need corners. They didn't address the cornerback position until round five with Michael Carter, the second. I personally think they should have went corner a little sooner. I would have preferred to have seen one taken um, in round two or round four. And they waited until the latter half of the draft where there weren't as many good ones available. But, you know, championships, I I bring this up every show. We talk about football and drafts. Uh, Championships are won on days two and three with your day two and three picks. First round pick is easy. That's usually a home run pick for most teams. You fill a position of need or you go after the best player available. Um, There's really no arguing that. But the Jets also, they signed 12 undrafted free agents. Um, The first one that comes to note is Mike DeFumor out of Rutgers, a defensive lineman who I happen to like a lot. 
Um, he was one of two Rutgers players signed by the New York Jets. Uh, and the other Rutgers player was Brendan White. He is a linebacker and Ohio State transfer. Actually, his dad played in the NFL, which I found pretty interesting. And then um, another couple names, Milo Eifler out of Illinois, Andy Hopper from the Brew Party, if you're watching. Milo Eifler went to the same high school as Elijah Vera Tucker. So there is a connection right there, folks. That's very interesting. Uh, Parker Ferguson, an offensive lineman out of Air Force. Now the Jets, they went with one lineman in this draft. I know they focused on it last year as well with Makai Becton. But Parker Ferguson out of Air Force was first team all Mountain West. Grant Hermans, no relation to Todd Hermans, former Eagle. No relation there. Offensive lineman out of Purdue. He started all 33 games of his college career at left tackle, which was interesting to note. And then my favorite UDFA for the Jets is Tristan Hogue. Now, this guy's an offensive lineman out of BYU. In fact, he started his career at the University of Notre Dame, my fighting Irish. I'm a huge Notre Dame fan. I remember Tristan Hogue a little bit. He's an interesting prospect because he didn't get much playing time at Notre Dame. Notre Dame, the thing with us is they're so deep. At offensive line, guys are going to transfer, like uh, like Parker Boudreau transferred to UCF. He was one of the players that didn't stick around, who was an outstanding talent coming out of Winter Garden, Florida. He's, I think he's trying out for the WWE now. I think he earned the contract with them, which is very interesting. But anyway, the Jets weren't done at getting O-line uh, undrafted free agents. The fourth was Teton Saltz out of New Mexico. He's an excellent pass blocker. I'm excited to see what he can do. Then the last one. This one is interesting because last year the Jets went with Sam Thicken as their kicker, and the Jets have had kicking problems for years now. Um, they had that one good year with Jason Myers, local guy who went to Marist. I don't know why they let Jason Myers go. I think that was silly. They have not been able to replace him since. They went with that guy, Benedict, for a while. That was an utter fail. Sam Thicken last year only made 80% of his extra points. Uh, he only had 15 extra point attempts to go. That goes to show you how bad the Jets were getting the ball in the end zone last year. But um, I'm going to be honest. Ficken's not going to cut it in the NFL. If you make 80% of the extra points, I don't care how many attempts you have. I don't care that it's harder to make an extra point now because that line is pushed back. You have to make them. And Chris Nagger out of SMU led the American Athletic Conference in field goals. So now as I'm analyzing these guys and trying to figure out which guy has the best chance to make this roster, um, I actually do think it is the kicker, Chris Nagger, out of, S- out of SMU. I think that he's the type of guy you need to look at and say, hey, the kicker competition is you know, pretty thin on the Jets. It's not going to be... I guess you would say very tough for him to earn a roster spot at worst. He could crack the practice squad, especially now with the COVID-19 protocols. It's going to be very interesting to see how his game will translate into the uh, New York Jets scheme. But again, Jets went with a lot of no-name players from the fifth round onward. Their first four picks were home runs, but you know, you hope they nailed those fifth and sixth round picks. A lot of those guys, you don't really have too much film or, statistical analysis on guys who didn't play that much in college as starters. And I just got word from Kyle Russo. He will be joining me in just a few moments. I'm going to pick his brain on 
three of the Jets draft picks, Zach Wilson, Elijah Vera Tucker, and Elijah Moore before Greg Thompson comes on to talk about his Buffalo Bills at 8.30 p.m. And, you know, I guess it's going to be fun to talk to Greg because we had him on once before. And we're basically what we're going to do with Greg tonight is we're going to break down their first five picks in depth. And then we're going to kind of go over their later round picks, their later round picks. You know, we're interesting. The bills did not have a fourth round pick in this year's draft, but they did have three sixth round picks to put them at eight total draft picks. All of their draft picks have signed except for Greg Rousseau, Spencer Brown and Demar Hamlin. So that'll be interesting. They also got a few, undrafted free agents that I happen to like. Um, Nick McLeod, my guy out of Notre Dame, as we have a comment from Deanna. Thank you very much, Deanna, for commenting that. Go Fighting Irish. Yes. Uh, big Notre Dame fans on the show. So anytime you have a comment about Notre Dame, that will absolutely get pinned. No doubt about that. So thank you, Deanna, for commenting that. Appreciate it. So, as by the way, Kyle Russo has been studying – for finals um, all week, pretty much. So he will be joining us shortly. Um, the Bills, just to list through a few of their undrafted free agents, Quentin Morris, tight end out of Bowling Green, played as a wide receiver his first three years in college. Tariq Thompson out of San Diego State had 11 picks in his four years at school. Um Cyrus, I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name, but he was an offensive lineman out of Fresno State. He's actually the cousin of Bill's defensive end, A.J. Epineza, and then Trey Walker, a wide receiver out of San Jose State. Had over 1,100 yards receiving a couple of years ago. So it'll be interesting to see. And then in free agency, they did some good things. But, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking with Greg to pick his brain a little bit about these Buffalo bills. And actually I have him backstage. So um, if you're, if you're ready, give me the thumbs up. I'll bring you up whenever. Um, so I will definitely um, get his analysis on that as we're also waiting for Kyle Russo as well. Um, but yeah, so I really like this Greg Rousseau pick for them because I know I'll, I feel like every NFL fan was just given such a bad vibe on Greg Rousseau from the media because he didn't play last year. He didn't play in 2020. So I do think generally speaking, a lot of teams wanted to avoid this player because of the bad narrative that was portrayed on him. But now, you know, the more that I think about it, this guy in the one year that he did play significant time, because in 2018, he barely played um, 15 and a half sacks. And he missed some time in that season as well. He missed a couple of games, I believe. And I think he's probably an immediate starter. Um, it'll be interesting to see where he plays because the Bills, I know Sean McDermott, um, they, they throw a couple of different looks at you defensively and them going edge rusher, their first couple of picks with Carlos Basham too out of Wake Forest in the second round. Um I know the Bills, they went Epineza last year, so it is a little confusing as to why they drafted two edge rushers unless they plan on putting one of them at the three-tech and then the other at the five-tech. So I'm looking forward to um, talking about that as well. And then um, as Greg is ready, we're going to bring him up, folks. Uh, Greg Thompson. Greg, how's it going? What's going on, man? Uh, doing good, doing good. Things are, things are well. It's uh, – 
uh, a fun time to be a Bills fan. So it's uh, it's it's good to be able to finally feel good. All the guys you were just talking about here, it's fun that I I don't know who's gonna get reps or or make the roster when before the Bills fans were desperately praying that the draft picks would come in and save the team. Uh, now I'm not really sure how many of them are going to get snaps. It's great. So, Greg, um, before we go any further, just want to give you a minute to plug yourself and tell people where they can find Cover One and all that good stuff. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you guys can find me online at Greg Tomset. Uh, you can find my work over at CoverOne.net or on the Cover One uh, YouTube channels, probably the most common place people find us. Uh, you can find myself and Aaron Quinn hosting the Cover One Buffalo podcast. We have a group of guys doing Cover One draft work. We have a, a lot of written work on the site and then some of the best film breakdowns in the business from Eric Turner. Uh, just a, a good one-stop shop for everything, for sure for the Bills, but also some good draft work for uh, folks that are outside the Bills uh, universe. Absolutely. Um, and Greg, thank you so much for joining us again. We do have a comment from Sam Cardona. Sam, yay, Bills Talk, my second New York team. <laughs> nice. I appreciate uh, it, Sam. And before I bring up Kyle, who um, is in the midst of grinding for finals, um, Greg, it seems like in the playoffs this year, like everybody became a Bills fan all of a sudden. It, it was kind of weird personally. I feel like every other team in the NFL wanted the Bills to make it to the big game because they haven't been there in so long. What are your general thoughts on that? And are you flattered by all this outside support from other NFL teams? Or does that maybe turn you off a little bit as a Bills fan? So that was a big debate within Bills Mafia and all the different fan bases of, hey, I've suffered through all this, get away, we don't want anybody on the bandwagon now. I, that's not how I'm wired. I, I like people, I like to enjoy things, I want people around and to be able to enjoy this with me and that, yeah, of course, people who suffered through the longest playoff drought in sports history and going 18 years without going to the playoffs and, you know, never winning a Super Bowl and, and all those things and not even being there since I was a teenager. Um, of course, I'm going to experience it and appreciate it more than somebody who just kind of took them up as a, as a recent team. But I think some of that suffering, some of that, the, the fun videos of the fan base, I think it's a, a fairly easily likable group of people. Um, so once it gets to that point, I think that it became an easy and fun group to be able to go through. And I think that's a good way to see it is that you have guys who are fun to root for a team that was scoring a bunch of points. I think Josh Allen's the kind of player that people can get behind. He plays a, a entertaining brand of football. Not always the most, not always the best for my heart, but uh, an entertaining brand of football. So um, I certainly took it well. And I tried to get more people to be open to uh you know, allowing and not pushing back and people rooting for the bills, but I get it. We, we suffered through a lot and people wanted to kind of keep them as their own. <laughs> Kyle, what's up? How's it going? Um, doing well, just finished up finals. The grind is over. For Congratulations, man. That's awesome. The grind is over. Yeah. Good um, for you. So I know last time we spoke with you, Greg, we were right before the wild card round matchup, yeah. you were bit as busy as a bee hopping from show to show. It seemed. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. now we're here and the NFL draft is coming gone. And I kind of want to talk to you. Uh, we'll go into depth about the first five picks or so. And then I guess briefly touch upon the rest. Um, Greg Rousseau edge out of Miami. I kind of want to pick your brain on him because I think a lot of people wanted to avoid this guy so what was your initial reaction to this pick did you expect it did you like it was it a little 
um, alarming? So I, I was probably in the middle. Um, I have some guys who were really low on him that were not happy at all. Um, you have some folks like, you know, Daniel Jeremiah had him, I think, you know, top 15 overall and his number one pass rusher. Um, so there were different camps. Um, I was in the middle. He was on my list of best available players. I think I had four guys ahead of him um, that I would have at the moment preferred Tevin Jenkins or obviously none of us knew about the Uwusu Koromoa, you know, heart things and, and some of the reasons he fell to late second. Um, I even liked Asante Samuel Jr. And then at that point, I was right there. He was in the same tier as, you know, Jason Owe and Joe Tryon and Peyton Turner and all the guys who went bang, bang, bang right in a row. I had Jason Owe a slight notch ahead of him, but in that same group and in that same tier. So, you know, I maybe thought he was 35th and we got him 30th. So I, I can't, you know, throw a fit about that. Um, I do, I will say... After the draft, finding out so much about it. So, you know, before you brought me on, you were talking about the fact that he opted out. You know, a lot of people had that as a pretty big negative. He was uh, in his redshirt freshman year. He blew onto the scene, 15 and a half sacks, played fantastic. But people wanted to see more, especially refinement in the pass rush, you know, repertoire and his his layer in moves together. You know, his mother was uh, a ICU nurse in the middle midst of COVID, and him opting out allowed him to sign with an agent and to have money to allow his mother to retire. Anybody who wants to give me a hard time about <laughs> having somebody opt out to let their mom retire and not face covid every day in a hospital I, all right but you know i i'm certainly not going to downgrade a guy for that so you know would i've liked to see another 10 to 12 games of reps sure but you know you can't teach 6 7 260 with 83 inch wingspan so i'll i'll hope that the position coaches can coach that up and maybe have a little longer term outlook than maybe an initial 2021 huge splash impact um but i'm still looking forward to the future for it and i I was supportive of the pick even if it wasn't maybe who i would have picked now greg moving into the second round now you guys draft another edge at a wake forest carlos basham jr who i was actually a giants fan advocated them to draft this edge was one of their weaker positions and tom and i we talked about this prior to the draft we were talking about the bills specifically when we were addressing their first round pick is that they don't have that stud that star on the defensive side of the edge rusher position Talk about not only what Basham could bring to the table, but alongside a Gregory Rousseau. So Basham was one that I did have on the radar. I had actually projected him at one point as a second round target um, and that they'd be lucky if he fell that far. And I felt that way. Now, in the moment after going defensive end at 30, I did lose my mind online for about a 45 minute period <laughs> that I just couldn't process it. There were cornerbacks that I like, there were interior offensive linemen that I liked, other positions that I thought would be impactful. Um, you know, stepping away from it a couple weeks now, I've kind of absorbed it. And I'm like, all right, you know, it's kind of the guy that we thought Quentin Jefferson was going to be for the Bills with that rotational role. He can play some three tech, he can play some strong side defensive end, um, he can kick in side on passing downs and kind of the Giants NASCAR formation I'd love to see more of that Epinesa does the same thing Rousseau can do the same thing Uh, Mario Addison can do the same thing Um, so it's interesting but now with Jerry Hughes Mario Addison Gregory Rousseau Carlos Basham AJ Epinesa you know 
there might be five guys that all play 40 to 50% of the snaps. Like, I don't know that they're going to have that. We don't have a Khalil Mack. We don't have a Von Miller. We don't have a Bosa brother. Um, it's going to be a, a group rotation. All those guys can get snaps. They can stay fresh. Um, and obviously the history with the Giants and uh, with, you know, you look at that Eagle Super Bowl run. They didn't have a superstar defensive lineman, but they had eight guys who could all get snaps. Um, that has value in today's NFL. So I'm, I'm hoping that's the path they take. But in the moment, I was my brain fried a little bit when they went back-to-back pass rushers. Yeah, just thinking about that now, it kind of um, – I know you probably heard me talking about this before we brought you up, but – Two edge rushers in the first two rounds. You mentioned that um, Basham can play some three-tech. Now, do you think they're both interchangeable between the three-tech and the five-tech? Like, I know Sean McDermott, I, I'm pretty sure they run a 4-3, no? Or mm-hmm. they, do they – yeah. So how do you feel about that personally? Do you think that um, – because you do have Epinesa. I believe Jerry Hughes is still there too. Yep. So it's a pretty deep – um, defensive end depth chart for you guys. So, you know, I mean, I look at Basham though. Again, this is this guy reminds me a lot. I'm not going to go out and say OC because you know, as Kyle mentioned earlier, the Giants did something similar to what the Bills did years back. They took they took Matthias Kiwanuka when nobody expected them to take him. We had Strahan, we had OC, we had Tuck. And now they take Kiwanuka. Basham had five sacks, four forced fumbles in just six games this year. And I'm starting to think about it now. The Bills only had one sack in the AFC Championship game against the Chiefs. So I'm starting to think this might be a good thing, potentially. Um, You mentioned how these two guys in general could potentially fit into this scheme. Like, Do you see them as starters? Do you see... Epineza and Hughes maybe taking a backseat. What this tells me is Hughes is in trouble, but I know you thought about that. I think it's more long-term planning. Um, So Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison's contracts are up after 2021. I think this is planning and layering to be able to bring that in. They can afford to keep all of them for this year. One of the challenges is we've talked about five of them. F.A. Obata was actually a nice signing out of Carolina who had five and a half sacks for them last year. And Daryl Johnson has actually been a pretty good player that plays a ton of special team snaps. They have seven NFL roster caliber defensive ends. I have no idea what they're going to do. Um, but whether that's cut down, you know, Brandon Bean doesn't do the comp pick bingo, but he does do a lot of cut down day trades and get future day three draft picks. So I have a feeling a couple of those guys could be in the market there. There's a possibility that Mario Addison is cut. I think that would be the only one out of those guys. Jerry Hughes is a team captain and the longest-running Buffalo Bill on the roster. I don't see any possibility that he's released or anything like that, but this does tell me that maybe they're not looking to extend him and bring him on further, that now you need to layer in as you get into the Josh Allen contract years. You need cheap contracts in other places now having Epinesa, Basham, and Rousseau as your three-man defensive rotation next year for the three of them combined under six million dollars that's pretty good so I think this year it's a luxury this year I don't think Rousseau is going to be a red shirt because I don't think you really red shirt first round picks but I wouldn't be shocked if he's 20 or 25 percent of the snaps Um, I wouldn't be shocked if there's some games early in the season where he's a healthy scratch and not ready to play yet I think people may not be aware Carlos Basham's almost three years older than Gregory Rousseau. He is much more 
at closer to his ceiling of what he's going to be. Now, I think that ceiling's not as high as Gregory Russo's, but I think maybe the floor is higher than Russo's. People talked about the bust potential there. So I actually think Basham could come in and play 30, 35, 40% of the snaps this year. I think they start with Epinesa and Jerry Hughes, but I don't think either of them play more than 50 or 55% of the snaps. I think it's a heavy rotation the whole time, and this does tell me that we're probably not going to see guys like Addison and Hughes back next year. It's probably going to be those young guys coming forward, taking the mantle, but maybe we have the luxury of easing them in. Right. No, for sure. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see how those players play. And we do have a couple comments. Hank, how's it going, guys? Hank, thank you so much for the comment. And um, Sam has a question for you about Josh Allen, undraft-related. Um, a question about his postseason performance where she feels that he gets a little nervous and doesn't perform his best football when the Bills could have possibly have made the Super Bowl this year. It's totally fair, um, and I think that I would like to think his season last year answered a fair amount of questions and certainly quieted many of the doubters, but he's not flawless in, in any aspect. I would say the Colts game and the Ravens game answered an awful lot of those. He was exceptional in both of those games, and then his game against the Chiefs was better than Mahomes' game against the Buccaneers in the Super Bowl. Um, so unless you're asking the same questions about Mahomes, I mean, you know, it's you no, know, only one team leaves with, with the trophy. So, of course, I wish that they had won, but I, I don't know that, you know, two very good playoff games and then one where the, you know, the pressure was getting to him and he was running for his life and trying to make the best of the game. I, I certainly don't. I didn't walk away from that game saying, oh, man, Josh Allen cost us the AFC Championship game. I was very frustrated that they lost, and there's plenty of stuff that the Bills did to lose that game, uh, and the Chiefs played well and deserved to win, clearly. But I, I don't know that I walked away saying, oh, man, if not for Josh playing better, we could have won. That wasn't the reason that they lost. Now, Greg, we talked about the defensive luxury that you guys have on the defensive side of the ball. Now, moving on to the offensive side of the ball, retracting back to the draft, your third-round pick, Spencer Brown, absolute standing monster at 6'9", 320 pounds. Already adapting to that Buffalo mentality. Obviously, you had to have seen him <laughs> jumping through tables already, uh, getting used to that Buffalo uh, mentality. Is that more of a, like you talked about with the defense, more of an insurance policy, more of a uh, a long-term answer, as you guys do have Deion Dawkins and Darrell Williams? Uh, 100%. And I do think... There was a um, a sneaky need at swing tackle. So the Bills had Ty Nsecki, uh last year, who was a really nice guy who could step in, split reps the year before, and then was there this year. But then Darrell Williams and Dawkins stayed healthy almost the entire season. So um, Nsecki had to play one game, and then he signed a pretty good contract uh, to head down to Dallas. So um, that was a sneaky need that they didn't really have. They had Ryan Bates, who was a... UDFA they picked up from the Eagles a couple years ago and has stuck on the roster. And then guys like Bobby Hart out of Cincinnati and just, you know, minimum contract guys. So adding someone like that that I think I'm not sure is ready to see the field this year, but if they need to, um, you know, that's the kind of swing you take on a – that's what Taron Armstead was out of uh, when New Orleans picked him in the third round. Elite athlete out of a really small school, but you hope that it translates – um, I don't know if you guys pay attention to you know the some of the guys online that do the the RAS scores, the RAS scores, relative athletic scores for for draft picks. Spencer Brown was the most athletic offensive tackle in history 
Like that's just unbelievable. Wow. He was an elite five-star basketball prospect that then put on weight and became an offensive tackle, but still is doing like 54 inch box jumps and bench <laughs> bench presses 500 pounds at six, eight with crazy long arms. It's he's a freak of nature. Now I, I think it's there's some people in Bill's Mafia who've gotten a little too excited that he's just immediately going to come in and like press Daryl Williams for his job. And I'm like, hey, he was a third round pick for a reason. Uh, there's some development here, but I do think Brandon Bean's really smart about contract layering. The same things we talked about with Mario Addison and Jerry Hughes expiring. And now you got guys ready to come in. Daryl Williams assigned to a three year deal that was really a one year and we'll see um, with no guarantees or future dead cap. So. They, if all of a sudden they discover in camp that, hey, we got something here, he easily could be the starter in 2022, or I would project 2023, um, and was, you know, we'll, we'll probably get to it here with the next pick. You know, if, if you look at why the Chiefs beat the Bills and then why the Buccaneers beat the Chiefs, and when you're one of those final four teams, those are the kind of questions you're asking yourself. It's that, well, the Buccaneers had a crazy pass rush. And the Chiefs got sank by a lack of offensive line depth. What were the first four picks for the Bills? Two pass rushers, two offensive tackles. Um, so, you know, I don't think that's a coincidence that that's the way they approach that when they that's what they saw in their final two games. Right. And I know Spencer Brown, he'll be an interesting prospect to monitor because um, he can improve with his footwork from the film that I saw, but I really do like him a lot. Played a lot of right tackle. And Tommy Doyle, this next pick out of Miami, Ohio, very similar size he's six eight weighs a little more i think um nfl.com had him listed as 350 pounds um uh, yeah i think he, he trimmed down a little bit from there but was mm-hmm. i think in the 330s he's a big dude yeah now he started all three of his team's games at left tackle obviously they had a shorter season first team all conference guy i think he plays with a lot of grit now in this crowded tackle room is he also a project guy Definitely a project, a sneaky connection. He went to Miami of Ohio in the MAC. Uh, the Bills' offensive line coach, uh, Bobby Johnson, is an alum of Miami of Ohio. So if you're going to have any insight on, hey, is this guy going to translate? Do we have something here? He's going to know that. So I like that when you have those kind of connections for day three picks and things like that, that you're going to know, do we have a chance of having a guy translate here? He's. You know, he's 80% a Spencer Brown. He's got a huge frame, huge upside. But when you're taking a guy like Spencer Brown, who checks every box from an athletic standpoint, but did play at Northern Iowa and didn't play a great deal of competition, and then the FCS schools moved their season to the spring that many of us just watched here with the FCS uh, tournament, he didn't play at all. So, you know, not for the same reason that Gregory Russo didn't, but that's two out of the three picks that didn't play any football in, in 2020. At least Tommy Doyle has a little bit more recent experience, continued development, and if you're going to take a shot, I think having two 6'8", 300-plus-pound super athletic tackles, maybe now your odds are, hey, maybe one of them hit, and you don't have to put all your eggs into one basket. Um, and again, when we had no tackle depth, it, it makes sense now, again, layering contracts, getting those things ready, that now you've developed and maybe get two years of a starter out of one of them when Darrell Williams' contract's ready to expire. Now, Greg, moving on to the next pick, seems like just a couple years ago you were talking about 
lack of depth and area receiver. And now it's it's almost a plethora for the Buffalo Bills in, in, in just a couple off seasons between having Stephon Diggs, Cole Beasley, adding Emmanuel Sanders, Gabriel Davis, who I thought last year was one of the steals of the draft at a UCF, and now adding Marquez Stevenson. Where does he fall in this wide receiver class? Is he potentially the replacement for Cole Beasley? So you want to start a good fight in Bill's Mafia, go ask about which receivers are going to make the, the end of the roster here. Um, I actually liked Isaiah Hodgins more than Gabe Davis coming out of last year's draft. He was kind of a red shirt last year because he has shoulder surgery. He's coming back. The, the Bills have a lot of varying skill sets on the uh, receiver group, but they don't have a lot of size. And Hodgins coming back at 6'4", 210 is an interesting skill set. He had the best... Uh, catch rate in college football coming out of that draft with Davis. I was too low on Davis. He was a wonderful surprise uh, for last year. Isaiah McKenzie is kind of a sneaky gadget guy and had a couple nice games towards the end of last year and is going to be fighting for one of those return jobs. And that is Marcus Stevenson's path to the roster initially. Um, I think he can win both the kick return and punt return jobs right out of the gate. And then a guy who is pretty undeveloped from a route tree standpoint, a lot of a lot of flies, a lot of slants, a lot of bubble screens, because they wanted to manufacture touches and get the ball in the hands of an elite athlete. But he wasn't, you know, shaking corners and, and, and creating separation on his own. It was pretty pure athleticism. Well, if you're going to learn how to make that translate, do it by watching Stephon Diggs, Cole Beasley, and Emmanuel Sanders in practice every day. Um, that's about the best school you can go to to learn footwork and technique and route running and how to be able to create separation. So I'm really excited about that. And the fan base loves Isaiah McKenzie. It's easy to root for a guy who's 5'7", 170 pounds and makes it in the NFL and just consistently finds ways to create touches. The man, he had eight touchdowns last year. It's it's a fun story. So a lot of people are really rooting for him. The challenge is Marcus Stevenson is that same guy, but is three or four inches taller and 20, 30 pounds heavier, and now has a four-year rookie contract. It's going to be tough. So my guess is that it's Isaiah, Isaiah McKenzie versus Marcus Stevenson for the return role because both of them can be gadget receivers and jet sweep guys and manufactured touch guys. Um, and it's really going to be who wins that return job. And I think if it's a tie, the fact that Stevenson was a recent draft pick and has the rookie contract might be the tiebreaker. Yeah, that's another intriguing battle. You guys have a lot of wide receivers now for Josh Allen. And I think you guys heading into his third year last year. Wait, you really so you have- mean when we had Kelvin Benjamin and Andre Holmes and Jeremy Curley, that wasn't good. <laughs> that, that was Josh's rookie year was Kelvin Benjamin, Andre Holmes, and Jeremy Curley. It was just an embarrassment of riches. Yeah, it, it really was. And Kelvin Benjamin now is a tight He's end. A tight end. Yeah. Yeah, so Booger, yeah, uh, Booger's finally ready. He, he had the extra biscuit. Now he's no longer a biscuit shy of a tight end. He's fully a tight end. Yeah, he can, uh, Hopefully uh, compete in training camp for the Giants. But uh, Justin Kearns saying hello. What's up, Justin? Appreciate the comment. Make sure to go check out JDF Sports and Kearns tomorrow night. Kyle, I know you'll be live with him talking some basketball. But, uh, Greg, I do agree. I mean, Stevenson, I know he has an injury history. That's the only thing that does concern me about him. But, again, every player has gone through an injury at one point or another, whether it's been documented or not. Now, these last three picks – Damar Hamlin and um, Rashad 
Rashid Wild Goose. I, I think it's Rashid. I, I, he, I think he goes by Rashad. Okay. Um, corner out of Wisconsin. Um, and then DeMar Hamlin, safety out of Pittsburgh. And then Jack Anderson, a guard out of Texas Tech. Guys who all have dealt with injuries a little bit and late round flyers. Which one of these three players do you think could have the most impact on this team heading into uh, 2021? So the again, this is foreign territory for Bills fans, but let alone UDFAs. That the Bills have a long history of going. Bills fans have a long history of going way overboard, rooting for underdog training camp UDFA stories. And you know, Chris Hogan was a guy that kicked around for a while and ended up coming over from the Jets and then eventually playing for the Patriots and, and played for the Bills and you know Derek Rogers and all kinds of fun. Brandon Riley, fun stories in camp that everybody would root for because we didn't have a whole lot to root for. Um, the tough part now is, let alone UDFAs making this roster, it's tough to be a day three pick and to make this roster. It's just, I, I don't, I think DeMar Hamlin has the most direct path um, just because the Bills lost Dean Marlowe uh, to a solid signing in Washington to reunite with Ron Rivera. And the, the Bills obviously have Micah Hyde, Jordan Poyer, and Jaquan Johnson. They're, they're pretty well set at the top there, but they always keep four safety. So I think DeMar Hamlin has the best path there. If he can carve out a role on special teams, he'll be competing with Rashad Wild Goose for that special teams role and that ninth or 10th defensive back role. Wild Goose has more athletic upside, but... Hamlin's tape was much cleaner, and and I think there was a stretch on that Saturday afternoon. I think somebody said it was three hours and twenty five minutes that Demar Hamlin was listed as Mel Kiper's best player available for like two, like a round and a half of the draft. Um, so you know, some people like him and think that that was a, a steal. I, I don't think he has a path to snaps um, there, but he can get on the field on special teams. And Jack Anderson, you know, I, I think it's just a you know, competing for depth on the interior offensive line. And right now, I don't think he has a path to the roster, but Brandon Bean does have a history of trading offensive linemen right towards the end. And he got draft picks for Marshall Newhouse and he got draft picks for Russell Bodine. And sadly, he got draft picks for Wyatt Teller. That one hurt a little bit. Um, But as those things happen, that's a very common occurrence for him. If all of a sudden Ike Botker or, you know, uh, Force Lamp, one of those guys gets traded and they open up a path. Maybe Jake Anderson makes a roster there. Most likely those guys are those fringe 53rd guy or priority practice squad guys to be able to come back. Um, but I, I don't know that I see a huge impact for many of them immediately. He may be Hamlin on special teams. Now, now Greg, moving on from, from the draft itself, and, and it connects with the draft a little bit, something that I thought – I said earlier that the Bills, I thought they needed to address the pass rush. They did. I thought they needed a little improvement on the offensive line. You saw that with the depth in which they drafted. And something else that I thought that they could have improved upon was the running back scenario in which they have. As, you know, Devin Singletary in his first year, he looked decent. Second year, not so much. They draft Zach Moss. Zach Moss got hurt as well. I thought they could add another guy. I know they uh, brought in Matt Breida as well. But how comfortable are you with those three guys being uh, – essentially, I don't even know who would be the main back in that case scenario. I think they're fine. Um, Obviously, there was a lot of discussion tying them to Travis Etienne. There was a discussion of what if Najee Harris is there. Um, You know, they went early and it it wasn't an option. So I don't know. I think that those rumors were trumped up more than were reality. And it was probably other teams 
leaking information about who was going to fall or not fall. Um, but I, I certainly I understand it. The Bills did not have a bell cow back. They don't. They didn't have elite athleticism. I think that they obviously show they have a type. So you have, you know, the stretch of. Zach Moss and Devin Singletary, they both have elite contact balance, great vision, ability to break tackles. They're not running away from anybody, and they're not shaking guys in the open field. Um, But they're hard to bring down. They fall forward. They hold on to the ball. They're able to make plays. Matt Breida is a little bit different than that. Matt Breida had two years in 2018 and 2019 where he was the fastest player in the NFL with the, the, you know, the... NFL tracking of the GPS devices on the on there hit over 22 miles an hour in, in both seasons. I'm a little hesitant because I I thought he was going to take control of that Miami backfield last year and he didn't. So I don't know what went wrong there. They never really gave him a lot of touches. The only game finally late in the season where he had double digit touches, he went for like 7.1 yards of carry and looked pretty good. But he could never get out of the doghouse with them. So I, I I'm not I'm a little hesitant on exactly how that's going to work. But now you have him and a sneaky guy late in the season. Antonio Williams got a run in that Week 17 game and actually looked really good against Miami. He was the guy who kind of got released and re-signed and released and re-signed during the year, I think six different times. Um, So I, I think there's a fine backfield. The Bills are going as far as Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs in the passing game takes them. So... I, you know, would I like if there was a weapon out of the backfield that threatened defenses and made them a little bit more concerned with it? Sure, but I, I think that a third year out of Devin Singletary, a second year out of Zach Moss, both third round picks, legitimate investments. I think I'm okay with that. I wouldn't have been heartbroken if they got a weapon that could have really advanced things, but I'm comfortable with what they have and think it's going to be sufficient. Um, And also I I think they're going to continue to be one of the past happiest offenses in the NFL. So you're talking kind of a 70, 30 split. And then out of that 30%, it's probably 15 Moss, 15 Singletary. It's really going to be split up. So any fantasy football players, I wouldn't be investing a ton in the Buffalo Bills backfield. I happen to agree with that. I also I also feel that you guys are fine at running back. My question now is the tight end room. Dawson Knox, Jacob Hollister, and Tommy Sweeney. Um, I, they, there were links that the Bills may have been interested in a guy like Pat Fryermuth, but they didn't draft him. How do you feel about the tight end room currently? So prior to the Bills getting Zach Ertz, I feel I feel less good. Um, so I've been I've been projecting that for a while that it makes a ton of sense mm-hmm. in that if if there if the a spot that he would make sense that has an opening on a really good team that doesn't have an answer right now, um, it makes a ton of sense. There were rumors. I, I beyond rumors, I'm aware of the fact that Brandon Bean and Howie Roseman were talking. Roseman wanted more than Bean was willing to give up, so they moved on, and now it's kind of a game of chicken of, okay, are you going to keep him or are you going to release him? Um, I think there's real smoke to that discussion, but I also know that there'll be whispers coming from Frank Reich and Carson Wentz if he gets released to go to Indianapolis as well. As far as the current room, I I am not a Dawson Knox believer. Um, I think I've seen the athlete, elite athleticism. I understand the RAS score. I understand his rookie year and the highlights, you know, crazy pile driving a guy with a stiff arm from Cincinnati through the turf and, and winning the angry run award from Kyle Brant and the guys at good morning football. That's fun. 
he also had the worst catch rate of any tight end in the NFL. And, um, you know, the Giants fans are aware of the challenges that come with an uber-athletic tight end who can't catch the ball. Um, It's something that I understand that he came from, he was a high school quarterback, went to a very elementary college offense at Ole Miss that also had DK Metcalf and A.J. Brown and other elite offensive players in the offense, so he wasn't getting a lot of touches. And then last year, he got hurt and got COVID. So yeah, I know smart people who have explained the the situation and explained a reason why they think he's going to break out this next year. It's not crazy, um, but it's not... I, I, I hope that he's good. Hope is not a plan. That, that's not what I'm planning for. Um, but similar to my comments for the running back room, the Bills were the wide re- most wide receiver centric in the office uh, in the NFL last year. They ran more f- four wide receiver sets than anybody. They ran more three wide receiver sets than anybody. The offense is going to go through the Josh Allen and those wide receivers. Dawson Knox or the running game will be a bonus, and that bonus could be the reason they go to even higher levels. But even without it, I still think having Stephon Diggs, Cole Beasley, Gabe Davis, and Emmanuel Sanders, they're probably going to be all right. Now, Greg, moving on from the draft and moving on to free agency, and this was by far the most questionable free agency signing, not solely because of the Bills adding a guy, a a depth and a backup QB behind Josh Allen, but for Mitch Trubisky, who people (laughs) argued could have potentially gotten another starting job elsewhere going here, solely eliminates that chance whatsoever, as far as I'm concerned. What, What is his role? What is his purpose with this team, ultimately? So... There, if you had to bet me money three years ago after a really rough season and Josh Allen's rookie year and some questionable discussions of uh, Brian Dable, that hey, don't worry, in the spring of 2021, the Buffalo Bills backup quarterback spot is going to be the spot that people go to to rehabilitate their image and to learn under an offensive genius and to be able to be ready for a new role in 2022. I would have lost a lot of money. Um, it, I, there's really not any other way to describe it is that I think Trubisky and his representatives felt like he needed a year to step back, regain his composure, do a lot of the stuff Josh Allen did with Jordan Palmer out on the beach, ripping the mechanics down to the studs and building it back up to rework everything, work under a smart offensive mind who this is, I think it's a little sneaky, Brian Dable was probably the best offensive or the best uh, candidate that didn't get a head coaching job, him and Eric Bieniemy. Um, so if you're going to work all season and then maybe go to a, a team that wasn't very good and fires their coach, maybe you're planning to go with Dable and, and to be able to rehabilitate your spot there as well. Um, so obviously the Bills moving from a guy like Matt Barkley to Mitch Trubisky, Mitch Trubisky is not a franchise quarterback, but he's not terrible. Like if you're telling me, you know, that hey, he's probably the 25th or 30th best quarterback in the league, it's not bad as a backup. So, um with Josh Allen's playing style and how physical he plays and the fact that he likes to try to truck linebackers and things like that, uh, you know, I don't mind having a, a above average backup quarterback. You know, I, I think he's right in that realm and it was an upgrade to Matt Barkley, so um, if Josh Allen needs to miss three or four games, I feel like Mitch Trubisky with this offense and this roster could keep the ship afloat for a short period of time. So um, 
and then if nothing else, maybe he leaves next year and gives the Bills a comp pick. So I'll, I'll be happy about that then. Yeah, I mean, I also like what you guys did on offense, not just with the addition of Trubisky providing insurance in case Allen does go down. You got Farce Lamp, who you mentioned before, on a one-year who people argue that he could potentially start in this league still. I know he started all 16 for the Chargers last year. Uh, you signed Matt Hack, former Dolphin, new punter, and then Emmanuel Sanders on a one-year deal replacing John Brown. So what do you think of those moves? I really think you mentioned before – now, I know you re-signed Feliciano and Daryl Williams, who, you know, you were kind of talking about Daryl Williams. You have that tackle depth, and you have the guard depth, too, especially Jack Anderson, Forrest Lamp. There's going to be a lot of competition in Bill's training camp this year. I remember we spoke with, I think it was Matt Perino last year, yeah. right around training camp time, and he's like, this is the most competitive Bill's training camp I've seen since I've ever, like, been – a Bills reporter. It's insane. This guard depth, I really like what they did on offense, investing in Josh Allen even more than last year now, where you could have this argument, Josh Allen could be the MVP in 2021. I don't think that statement's too far-fetched. Uh, it is crazy to hear that, but yeah, I mean, Vegas has him as the third favorite uh, going in. He finished second last year, so obviously it's not you know out of the realm of possibility. And Again, I, I don't think there's no, you know, superstar on this offensive line, but there's a lot of pretty good NFL caliber offensive linemen, and there's going to be some pretty good ones who don't start. So Ike Bakker started the last six games in all of the playoffs last year for the Bills when they put up 500 points on offense. So he, he did pretty well. Uh, Feliciano had moments for them last year. They brought back, you know, uh, their Cody Ford's coming back from injury. who or He hasn't been able to play healthy yet. Mitch Morris has been good when he's healthy. And now you add in a guy like Forrest Lamp, who started all 16 games for the Chargers, and now is coming in just as a competitive guy, just to be able to see if he can make the roster or fight for a, a starting spot. It's similar to the Matt Breida signing. It's similar to the Jacob Hollister signing. It's similar to, you know, Terrell Adams was a nice piece for Houston last year. He had 125 tackles. Um, F.A. Obata was a nice pass rusher for Carolina. And, and adding in all those different pieces – it's the fact that they got a bunch of guys for cheap and being able to come in that, hey, if they make it and they fight for a spot, that's great. If not, it didn't cost us anything. And I spent 20 years watching the Patriots do that. And they, they would always get these guys. And I'm like, why are, they, why are pe people signing there for so cheap and just to see if they can make the team? And you might be a backup or you might be used in a small role. And it's very foreign to see the Bills now get signings like that to be able to add guys. And that, you know, I was a huge fan of John Brown, but obviously with the playing style of Stephon Diggs and Cole Beasley, the Bills have shown very clearly they prioritize route running and creating separation and getting open for Josh Allen. And that's the kind of move you make when you go from the long speed of John Brown to the elite short area quickness and separation of Emmanuel Sanders. Um, it, it's something that it, it was a solid free agency period. No one thought the Bills were going to be able to re-sign Matt Milano and Darrell Williams, let alone Matt Milano, Darrell Williams, and John Feliciano. So getting all those guys squeezed in under the cap and then still getting, you know, an upgrade at punter and, you know, Emmanuel Sanders and now all the rest of these guys on cheap deals and 
they're still connected with talks for Zach Ertz. They're still connected for talks with Richard Sherman or Steven Nelson at cornerback and, and, you know, Jarrell Casey or guys like that at defensive tackle. I don't think the Bills are necessarily done getting some of these guys who are left that lost that free agency musical chairs with the cap coming down. The Bills are now one of those teams. They're like, hey, if I'm going to sign on for somebody, I might as well go for a playoff run, see if I can, you know, get some primetime, uh, you know, exposure and get some good film out there for a team that's being seen by a lot of people. Um, again, that's just something I, I'm not used to, but it's something I, I welcome that that's now maybe a new part of my life. Yeah. I mean, I think when you talk about Milano too, I mean, I think that was the most important um, guy to retain for you guys uh, solidifying the middle of that defense. You just saw how much better the defense played with him in the lineup last year. And that helped you guys against the Colts. I mean, and the Ravens as well in the playoffs. And, you know, that's that's night, night really and day difference stuff. when he was healthy. When he's out there healthy, it's a night and day difference. And it it hurt last year when he was out injured, and I was worried about what it was going to look like without him this coming year. Yeah. I mean, I think he's an important player. And now, you know, you brought back Levi Wallace too, which is good. I yeah. think he's a, he's a good corner, very under the radar. And – we're looking ahead now into the Bills' 2021 schedule. And while, yes, they came in first place, so they do have a first-place schedule this year. I, I believe last year they finished in second, so they took advantage of the second-place schedule when they were a first-place team pretty much, I mean, talent-wise. And I feel like the Bills' schedule isn't really as tough as people are making it out to be. I mean, people see the Chiefs the Titans, the Colts, and the Saints, they're all a little concerned, but only seven of their 17 games are against playoff teams. Um, three of their, of their last four games at home, and if you look at the opponent's record percentage, they're tied 23rd easiest at 478. So I really like their schedule heading into 2021. I kind of wanted to ask both of you guys how many games you could realistically see the Bills winning and, um, you know, what you guys think. Because I personally think it's a very favorable schedule for them. Yeah, there are some really good stretches. So you get three out of the first four at home, three out of the last four at home. There is a couple tough ones, but they're spread out. They don't play one team coming off a bye the entire season. Every single team they play uh, is coming off of a previous game. So just some little things like that. They don't have any crazy road trips. They only go outside of the, you know, eastern time zone to Kansas City and then technically with Tennessee and New Orleans, but I don't even count that as, as far travel. Uh, so just some nice little pockets like that. And then the way I do schedules, I think people look obviously at the previous year's schedule or the previous year's record and then do strength the schedule that way. I usually do it based on quarterbacks and head coaches. And once you get past Pat Mahomes and Tom Brady maybe Ryan Tannehill. I don't know who you're afraid of on this schedule. So there's some good teams. I think Washington is tough, but it's at home and it's Ryan Fitzpatrick. You know, do, do any of us know if Deshaun Watson's playing for the Texans this year? Um, they play, you know, four of the different rookie quarterbacks. We'll see what Carson Wentz has. We'll see what Jameis Winston or Taysom, Taysom Hill can do. But, you know, I, I like Matt Ryan as a player, but I don't know that I'm afraid of the Falcons at home in December, actually in January. So at, it, it it honestly doesn't 
slayed out that bad for a first place schedule. So some of the reasons you get that is obviously the Chiefs and the Titans who won their division, but you also get Pittsburgh instead of Cleveland because technically Pittsburgh won the AFC North. I think that's kind of a win. Out of all the number one uh, seeds in the NFC, the Bills got the division winner in the new 17th game from the NFC East, which is Washington, who's not a bad team, but they won that division at 7-9 and nine, and now have Ryan Fitzpatrick as their quarterback. So as far as how things shake out, I certainly thought it was as favorable as a first-place schedule can be. Um, again, not playing any teams off a of bye, having positive net rest. Uh, there, actually, I think it kind of breaks even some Thursday games. Um, so I think that they're, you know, last year they were 13-3. and three. Some things broke the right way. Um, you know, one of those losses was the crazy Hail Mary to uh, Deshaun Hop- or, uh, to DeAndre Hopkins and the Cardinals. But, you know, I think with the extra game in here, you know, 12-5, and 13-4, I, th- I think that's the ballpark I would expect. I, you know, they'll probably stumble in a game that I don't expect, but there's a lot of games on that schedule that good teams just should win. So that's where my head is at, with that 12-5, and 13-4 range. And I think that they're, you know, they're certainly not ahead of the Chiefs, but I think if things fall the right way, getting that number one seed isn't out of the question. Yeah, I would happen to agree as well, Greg. Same type of evaluation for me is that you look at the quarterback and coach scenario, and a lot of these quarterback situations are, you know, are flawed. You look at Carolina as well with Sam Darnold in the addition there. What is he going to be in his first year with Matt Rule? You look at Ben Roethlisberger, who last year he had to throw the ball 50 times to even have the Pittsburgh Steelers have a chance in a football game. Now you're opening up the season with that game. Essentially, what is Najee Harris going to be? You know, in his first game as a rookie, he may be able to take advantage in that sense as well. Jacksonville, Trevor Lawrence later on in the year. Jameis Winston, what is he going to be? Or whether it's Taysom Hill or not. And obviously New England uh, going throughout the season. Is it going to be Mac Jones? Is it going to be Cam Newton? Even with Miami. You know, now that Tua doesn't have a backup in Fitzpatrick for the Miami Dolphins to rely on, if Tua's not slinging the ball well, it's, he's the only one there to take advantage of. So I could easily see them going 12-5, 13-4, like you said, Greg. Yeah, I mean, look, guys, I think 12 wins at worst, right? At least that's what I'm thinking right now. I know the division got better. We just sure. Even the Jets got sure. better. So I don't know if it's a guaranteed sweep against the Jets. I'd like to think that. Yeah, but... the Bills swept the division for the first time in a long time last year. I, I do think they're going to win a fair amount of those games, but 4-2 and two or 5-1 and one would not be crazy at all with how much better some of those teams are there. But I, I will say from a gambling standpoint, the Bills over-under at 10 or 10.5, I actually feel pretty good about. I think that's not a bad not a bad wager, short of a major injury that we're not expecting. I, I think over 10 or 10.5 is, is a pretty healthy uh, bet. Yeah, I mean, I got them winning 13 right now. That can change. Did you hear what Dan Graziano said about you guys? I I, I, I certainly did, um, and, and it's it's fun to be able to hear that. Now, it's not crazy. I, I mean, the obviously the Chiefs are still the best team in the league. If you play out each of the next handful of seasons, every year you should probably pick the Chiefs. Are really good, you know. It's it, it's not crazy, but last year showed they're not going to win every year. Heck. We're one cowardly Kevin Stefanski punt away from the Bills and the Browns playing in the AFC Championship game. If Kevin Stefanski doesn't punt that ball back to them, I think the Browns win that game. And that it could have been the Bills and the Browns in the AFC Championship game. And I think it would have been the Bills and Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. Um, and that maybe with two healthy offensive tackles, the uh, Bucks defensive line doesn't take over that game. So it's it, you never know. You, you can't 
plan as though one team is the only option that's there. And the Bills, I think, were smart in that once you put yourself into that window where you can legitimately compete for a Super Bowl, you have to do everything in your power to stay there. I think some people, especially some Bills fans, were desperate to want to see some market upgrade in that, oh, just re-signing those guys and bringing in this extra talent, we didn't get better. And I, I tell them, like, we were 13-3 and three and scored 500 points and went to the AFC Championship game. How much better do you want to be? Like, I, they're really, really good. They're one of the best five teams in the NFL. Um, and I think some people will have them ranked second in the NFL. So, you know, I think that's really exciting. And I think there's a bright future and some sustainability to this. Because as we've seen in the NFL, if you hit on quarterback, that answers an awful lot of questions for a long time. So I... I want to see Josh Allen do it again. I want to see him repeat his MVP caliber season. Uh, but I certainly am excited, and I think Bills fans have a reason to be excited. Absolutely. And, Greg, Kyle and I couldn't thank you enough for joining us again tonight. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap this segment up? No, no, I appreciate it very much. You guys are awesome. I really appreciate it. And I will say, um, for any Giants fan out there, I'm a Daniel Jones believer. I like what the Giants have done. I think it's really similar to how the Bills built around uh, Josh Allen. I think that they bet on physical skills and an elite athlete who is going to have the work ethic to be able to get better, and then we're going to continue to build weapons around him as they go. Um, And that the good news is they've eliminated the variables because now adding guys like Galladay and getting Barkley back healthy and the other additions that are there – if he doesn't come through this year, you know it's him. There's no other questions. There's no other concern or variable that, well, you know, we didn't get him the weapons to be able to do this. No, you did. He has the weapons, and you have two top-end tight ends, and you have multiple good receiving weapons. You have one of the best running backs in the NFL, and I think you've improved the offensive line. Maybe not all the way there yet, but improved on the offensive line. You eliminated variables, and now you're going to have a defined answer, and you're going to be able to know that, similar to what the Bills were hoping would happen this year, where you know before you need to pick up that fifth-year option. And I think that's the position they're in. And it's not a slam dunk. Maybe he's not the answer. I think the good news is you're going to know for sure. And if it was me, I think he does. I think he pans out, and I think he takes a step forward this year. Uh, And I'm actually going to be picking the Giants to win the division. I hope so, man. I hope so. That sounds that's that's beautiful coming out of your mouth into my ears. I just hope that's the case scenario. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I think there's a lot of positives coming forward. Um, yeah, that would be a three-hour debate with you as the mediator, Greg. I would <laughs> go left. Kyle would go right on that. I'm I'm a Jones believer. Kyle is not. So yeah. that's that's a conversation for another day. But I definitely hope you're right as well, Greg. Thank you again so much. Make Appreciate sure to go check out Greg Thompson. <laughs> host of the Cover One Buffalo podcast. Thank you very much, Greg. Thanks, guys. Take care. That was Greg Thompson, host of the Cover One Buffalo podcast, who pretty much gave us the full 10 yards and back on the Buffalo Bills, Kyle. And now um, I believe you still have a few more minutes before you have to get back, or do you no, have to I'm manage? good. To, I'm good to go. Finals are, finals are over. The book is closed. I am done. I am. I am free. Congratulations. You are officially a senior at Hofstra University. Crazy stuff, right? I remember yeah. when you were in high school. So, yeah. At, uh, Time yeah, flies. Some, some Time cra- flies. crazy content we, we did back then. We've been doing this for years now. But, um, yeah, but we still have two more teams to talk about. 
I know tonight's show was highlighted on the Buffalo Bills. Now, I talked about the Jets before you came on, and I actually – I did want to ask you one question about the Jets, yeah. uh, backtracking to them a little bit. Their first four picks were offense, and their last six picks were defense. I really like what the Jets did in picks two through four. That's in Elijah Vera Tucker, Elijah Moore, Michael Carter. I like Zach Wilson too, but I think he's boomer bust. Um, what was your favorite pick that the Jets took? Mine is Vera Tucker, but I definitely want to hear yours. I love Elijah Moore. You know, when I feel like at the end of this year, you know, depending, and it's all dependent, you know, wide receivers, in some cases, they make their quarterback, but in a lot of the case scenarios, the the quarterback makes the wide receiver. Um, and hopefully they're able to have that good connection both in their rookie years. But I have a feeling we look back at this rookie class and we're going to be talking about Elijah Moore. We already talked about him after the draft saying that he was a steal, considering that a lot of people nailed him in and pinned him in the first round, falling to the second round for the Jets. I remember the reaction that we all had, um, me, you, and Greg, when we were doing the second day draft show. And, you know, we hadn't even projected that that would be an outlook in which they'd look, but but we were all pleased, at least as far as I was concerned, with the pick in which they had. And I think that is a building block of that rookie-on-rookie connection and what you could potentially build in rookie training camp when training uh, training camp proceeds, uh, when preseason proceeds, and something that we're going to see flourish, I think, as the season progresses when it starts up in September. So that was my favorite pick for the Jets, Tom. Yeah, I had Elijah Moore as my wide receiver six, but you could definitely argue him as a wide receiver five, I think. Um, but, yeah, he's definitely a fun prospect to look at. The Jets have now gone – wide receiver in the second round two years in a row and we'll move on to the new england patriots and then wrap up the show with miami dolphins we're not going to spend too much time on this we'll just go over each of their top four to five picks and with the patriots of course they doubled up they doubled down on bama guys they took mac jones at 15 which is no shocker to anybody and then they went christian barmore in the second round they actually traded up eight spots to get him they gave up number 46 and then two fourth rounders to get christian barmore from the cincinnati Bengals, 38th overall how do you feel about new england doubling down on two bama guys in particular christian barmore which i think fills a huge void in their defense absolutely i i mean i know we're going to get into the favorite pick for the pats in a, in a quick second and a hot second but that's by far my favorite pick for them because again just an absolute steal tom i had him going uh, middle first round. So I think I had the Cardinals selecting him at the 16th overall pick. I think that's where they were slated. I think he's an unbelievable talent. Was at Alabama, big body guy, and really essentially the missing puzzle piece on that defense for the uh, for the New England Patriots. I know they brought in Godchuck from Miami, but I think that this is a guy that can instantly compete in training camp and potentially take that starting role and really solidify that defensive line and defense as a whole. So that, that that's the guy for me, Christian Barmore, I think was probably their top selection in my personal opinion. Yeah. First round talent went in the second round due to lack of linemen on both sides being taken in this draft. Players in the yeah. trenches were not going uh, at a good rate. We only saw a couple of linemen going in the first round and it took, it took until the second round for a safety to go for a defensive tackle to go. I love Christian Barmore. Mac Jones was the expected pick. I think he's going to sit behind Cam Newton for the first few games, and then eventually he will take over midseason as he should. I always think it's good for a rookie quarterback, unless you're a Trevor Lawrence type of prospect, 
to sit for the first few games and learn behind the backup. Now that's just me. Um, but we talked about how they doubled down with Bama guys. They doubled down in rounds three and four with Oklahoma guys. They went Ronnie Perkins, who you love, out of I Oklahoma. I think he was uh, a edge player. rusher. Who, quite frankly, Kyle, I was kind of surprised by the pick because they they signed Matt Judon, they signed Kyle Van Noy, they have Chase Winovich, who's a former second round pick. Why do you think they went Ronnie Perkins? It's because Bill Belichick is a defensive guy. And you could never have enough talent on the defense. That that's bottom line the fact. I mean, especially, I mean, obviously last season was one for the ages in terms of what happened. Uh, to the world was to the Patriots specifically the amount of opt-outs in which they had, the amount of injuries in which they had, the amount of COVID uh, that spread throughout their locker room. You know, so essentially all that happening last year, it's a security blanket pick. It's a pick where you say to yourself, the value is there. It's not a reach. We know he was a very good player at Oklahoma. And let's add a piece that we think that could add on to the, this defensive front, which was one of our weak standpoints last year. Now after free agency, we don't think that's the case. But what's the harm in adding depth at a position? Absolutely none. I think the New England Patriots are in a great spot. Um, Ronnie Perkins is not my favorite pick for them. Christian Barmore is also my favorite pick. Um, doubling down on what you said, Kyle, I'm a big trenches guy on both sides. I think you you know that by now. Very old yeah. school with, with uh, draft picks and whatnot. Um, Ramondre Stevenson, though, is their fourth round pick running back out of Oklahoma. This was a little surprising. He only played two years at Oklahoma. Uh, they have Sony Michelle and James White both in the backfield coming back. So I'd imagine um, this is going to be another typical New England Patriots back that you can't trust that is going to be part of that trio now in the backfield. They're not bringing Rex Burkhead back, most likely. Yeah who has a bad injury history. So I think this is that type of guy that you could say, hey, maybe he's that number three back right now. Or if you really think he could be that bell cow, then by all means, try him out. Because we know, I think at this point, you can kind of get the vibe that Sony Michelle's not that bell yeah. cow type of back that yeah. they they were hoping. Yeah, and I think they know that too. And not that Ramondre Stevens, uh, Stevenson is the guy, but again, like you said, Tom, uh, New England for years has been running systems where, again, they don't need the star bell cow running back. They just need a, a decent plethora of running backs, whether it was LeGarrette Blunt, who was a, a hard-nosed, fantastic uh, running downhill type of runner uh, who got it, I think, at one season. Didn't he have like 20 touchdowns in one season just based on all the times they ran him at the one or five-yard line right into the end zone? Close um, to it combination of uh Deion Lewis and James White for a while replacing Deion Lewis once he once he went to Tennessee with the Sony Michelle uh bringing in a Rex Burkhead and you saw last season he was valuable in a lot of in some of these games in which they chose to use him and you could potentially see the same thing uh for uh, uh Ramondre Stevenson just potentially working him in uh like Greg alluded to with the Bills backs are, are, are you betting on any of these backs in fantasy no but the way the Patriots use their system, uh, being inconsistent with their choice is what makes them essentially so good is because it, for opposing defense and opposing teams, you don't know which running back to cover. You don't know who they're going to throw at you. There, there's no essential starting running back on this team. Even with all the running backs they have, Tom, I don't think that you could really argue. I think you would assume that running back run would, uh, running back one would be James White or maybe Michelle, but there's no guarantee of what running back they're going to use more as you get from week one to week 
18 now. There, there's no guarantee right. with this running back class. No, I mean, look, I thought the Patriots had a good draft, though. I think a running back is definitely not a bad thing for them because neither of those will suffice as that type of workhorse that they're looking for. But I think the Patriots did a good job in the draft. I think the Bills also did a good job in the draft. And now the Miami Dolphins are a team that I thought did not good, great in the draft, in my personal opinion. They filled in a lot of holes, Kyle. They took our boy Jalen Waddell, who we both predicted going to the Giants. They added Will Fuller in free agency, now adding Jalen Waddell to the mix along with Devontae Parker, Mike Jacecki, that tight end who some people are are saying, why did Miami take a tight end early on? I mean, they did. They took one in the third round, and I think Mike Jacecki's tight end one. I don't know about you. I think he's a legit tight end one in this league, and now – Jalen Waddle is probably your wide receiver one if he pans out if he keeps the injuries together. So uh, what do you think about Jalen Waddle? And what do you think about my thoughts on uh, Mike Jacecki as tight end one? I think he, I think he's gained the respect the second half of the season uh, to be considered that type of guy, that tight end one in which they drafted him out of Penn State a couple years back. Um, slowly came onto the scene and then really started to sprout and develop as a true number one tight end uh, second half of last year. Jalen Waddell, again, you know, is a fantastic prospect. Uh, to be honest with you, there would, I think there's a legitimate argument to be said, even if he didn't have the size compared to Jamar Chase, if he didn't have that injured season the way he did, there could have been the argument that Jalen Waddell might have been the best wide receiver in the class, potentially based on what he was slated, what he was doing prior to having that ankle injury. I think that with along the likes of Devontae Parker, uh, Jakeem Grant, Will Fuller, and Jalen Waddell, again, you know, we talked about it with the Giants. The, the Dolphins have essentially eliminated all variables uh, of what Tua needs to succeed. Everything is there. The defense we saw last year quietly, or not even quietly, but was one of the best defenses in all of football. For a long time, they were like the number one or number two defense in football. Between their secondary and their front line, more so the secondary between Xavier Howard and, and Byron Jones, I think Xavier Howard had, what, like 10 interceptions last year, something like that? The defense, it, yeah. is, the defense is there. We know that. The offensive line needs improvement, but they added your guy in Liam Eikenberg to protect the blind side of Tua, which is obviously a beneficial thing. That's a necessity in this league. And Jalen Phillips as well in the defense. Everything is there. The coaching is even there for Brian Flores, who has done a tremendous job as well. Everything is there for him to succeed. He just needs to you know, get to that next level. And I think that with an injured kind of rookie season, they were working him in with Ryan Fitzpatrick. You know, hopefully he could take that next step because Tom, as you know, as a football fan, the the amount of people that went from if Tua didn't get hurt, he would have been the number one overall pick, not Joe Burrow, to the amount of people at the end of the season that said the Dolphins may be selecting a quarterback is insanity to me, just based on how quickly people switched. But you know, that's the stigma now with Tua Tagovailoa because of the amount of times they put Ryan Fitzpatrick in after taking him out. So we'll see what happens, but I think Miami's in a good position right now based on what they did in the draft. I think they are too. Uh, the Dolphins are in a really good spot. As you said, they took Jalen Waddell and Jalen Phillips in the first round. They took Phillips at number 18 overall out of Miami. Um, he had eight sacks last year, 15 and a half tackles for loss in 10 games. I really like that pick. There is a concussion concern there. He's one or two bad concussions away from having his career over. Uh, but he was pretty good this year for Miami. And then Javon Holland replacing Bobby McCain. Javon Holland was the first safety off the board, which was pretty cool. 
I'm surprised they went him over Morig, but they probably assumed Holland was a better scheme fit for Miami. Well, remember Morig had those bad that we we, we I, th- I think I told you afterwards after the draft was over. Ian Rapport reported that Morig apparently had like at the combine some back issues, and that was essentially the reason why he fell as far as he did. Um, but Javon Holland definitely had an Oregon. That's not a bad pick whatsoever. It's not. You probably did tell me that. I just it came and left my brain. But uh, <laughs> you know, Morig at a TCU went to Las Vegas, and then Liam Eikenberg, who might be the most important offensive lineman to Tua because he's two two is a lefty. Yep. Therefore, your right tackle is your blind side, and Eikenberg did a great job blocking for Ian Book at Notre Dame. Liam Eichenberg and Austin Jackson are the two strongest tackles metrics-wise at the combine in the past five years. Both of them are first uh, – well, okay. Both of them were first-round talents in my opinion. Now, I might be a little biased, but um, Eichenberg going at 42 is probably where most people had him. Um, again, the line depth just wasn't there this year compared to last year, uh, last year where you had four guys going in like – the top 12, 13 picks. And then here's Liam Eikenberg going at number 42. And then Hunter Long at a Boston College third round. That pick was a little confusing. Personally, I don't know if they just yeah. wanted like a blocking tight end or like a red zone target. You already have Durham Smythe and Mike Jacecki. And didn't they, didn't they, re- didn't they give like Adam Shaheen like a three year contract too? I could have sworn last year that they did. And now you spend a third round pick on a guy who's probably your tight end three can compete for backup tight end position. Are they going to run 12 personnel? Maybe, but that pick was the one that got me a little confused is where that's probably more of like a scheme pick. I'd imagine rather than a value pick. Um, I just don't think Hunter long was a third round talent, especially when Brevin Jordan was still on the board at that point. So but overall, I like what Miami did. They filled their holes. They got some good players, and they're more than likely going to be competing for the playoffs again in 2021, which leads us to our final segment of the evening, the state of the AFC East. All four teams improved, which is good for that division. Now, my question, Kyle, is can any team outside of the Bills make the playoffs this year in the AFC East? As we all know, last year they were the only team to make the playoffs. The Dolphins were in it till the very end. Unfortunately, there were, I believe, four or five teams vying for those final four spots. Miami yeah. was the odd one out. So how do you feel? I think that the AFC East, like you said, Tom, one of the most improved teams uh, throughout uh, AFC teams, one of the most improved divisions uh, from one offseason to another. And, you know, we break down this division, and I'd put the argument out there, and I'd say that there are three teams within this division that could win 10-plus games uh, between Miami, New England, and, and Buffalo, obviously, who won the division last year. You look at New England, and I think that they could really compete with Buffalo for the, this, this division. Going 7-9 and nine last year, I think I said this, I'm pretty sure I've said this numerous amounts of time, is that if you look at all the obstacles that Bill Belichick had to face last year, where – COVID really severely affected them. Uh, hit their best players in Stephon Gilmore, Cam Newton, your quarterback. Um, injury bug, taking out Julian Edelman and essentially you know, making him retire. Obviously a knee history, but retiring after the season. And the amount of opt-outs in which they had, and he still went 7-9, and nine, 
and now this guy had a fully loaded offseason, Tom, probably maybe the, the argument to be said that they probably had the number one free agency, maybe outside of the Giants, and had a fantastic draft as well as they did, had a lot of great guys fall to them in a Ronnie Perkins, in a Christian Barmore, on top of everything that they did. That's another four, five wins for me slated in there on top of last year, potentially, all dependent upon, for me, who's the quarterback. That's for me. But I think that with the defense alone and what they've done on the offense, that's easily another three, four, five wins, uh, to be quite honest with you. So that's a team that I could definitely see competing with Buffalo. I agree. I think New England might be more ready than Miami this year. I just think Miami is going to have a little trouble as far as the playoffs go again, not because of them, because New England got better. And New England had all those opt-outs last year. Now those guys are back. And I think if there's a second team out of the AFC East, it is the Patriots, but the Dolphins will be right there in case anything goes wrong with New England. I mean, the AFC is just so deep. I don't think you'll see three teams in the AFC East make the playoffs. That's just how I feel. But, um, Kyle, wanted to thank you for joining me tonight. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we sign off? Tom, always a pleasure joining you on another edition of Review and Preview. Absolutely. It's been a lot of fun. Greg was awesome tonight. We're going to have this interview out on our YouTube channel. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at Review Preview Sports. Doing a lot of good things there. We're making a push for 100 subs soon. And next week, folks, you're not going to want to miss this. Uh, Well, before next week, actually tomorrow, Kyle and Hank are going to be putting out a video discussing the Rangers firing Dave Quinn the New York Islanders, and the latest NHL playoff updates. I believe the Islanders and Penguins are playing game two tonight. Yes, uh, the Penguins are up right now 2-1 to one with basically a full period left in the third. Awesome. So we will see how that goes. I, I won't make any comments on that, but <laughs> next week – You're going to want to tune in as we'll update you on how all those series are going as Chris Nosek of JDF Sports, first-time guest, will be joining us to analyze the NHL playoffs and more. He'll be joining us as we will start at our normal time, 7 p.m. Next week, Chris Nosek is live right now, one of the two co-hosts of Puck Off on JDF Sports. So make sure to go check that out, folks. Really do appreciate it. Looking forward to having him on. Kyle, thank you again. Well, next time for joining me. You've been watching Review and Preview, everybody, here on Facebook Live. Have a good night.